Greetings to all the students who would normally be gathering at Mount Carmel's McCready Hall on Wednesday night. We are going to continue this, the third lecture of the spring, the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Again, hoping that sooner than later we'll be able to return to our normal and regular time together. But in the meantime, these 40 to 50 minute lectures are going to have to suffice. So I thank you for taking the time to find me and to listen to the lectures. If in the middle of the lecture everything stops, I've decided now, rather than with a snafu like that, beginning over again, just to record and post that much of the lecture as part one, and uh, then you'll see that I'll also post part two. So effectively, you want to look for a lecture that is in totality around 40 minutes or so in length. If it ends up being 20 minutes for some reason and my recorder kicks off, that's happened a couple of times. We'll just look for the second part on the anchor.fm podcast website. So having said that, let's hope that doesn't happen and we'll begin as we do each week together in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for bringing us together online to read and to study your word. Please open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say, that in better understanding you, we may come to love you more deeply. God our Father, you sent your Son into the world to be its true light. Pour out the Holy Spirit, he promised us, to sow truth in our hearts and awaken in us obedience to the faith. May we all be born again to new life and enter the fellowship of your one holy people. Grant this through the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Now, I'm going to invite you to return with me uh, to the book of the prophet Ezekiel. And, of course, in Ezekiel, we will return to where we last left off, and that will find us in chapter 12. I'll remind you that Ezekiel is a priestly character who has been in exile now for the better part of about four years, recently commissioned to move from the role of priest to prophet. And in exile in Babylon, he is delivering a series of prophetic messages, the result of visions given him. Some of his messages are word-based, others are action-based. And as we come to Ezekiel chapter 12, we have yet another example of an action the Lord requires of the prophet Ezekiel to teach a prophetic lesson, remembering that the lesson that is trying to be conveyed by the prophet is for the people to understand that this exile is a finality, and it will result in the Babylonians approaching the city of Jerusalem, laying siege to the city of Jerusalem, and defeating the defenses of the city of Jerusalem, and in the process, destroying the city and the holy temple. That's all coming down the pike, and Ezekiel is warning those in exile that that is the ultimate fate of the people, and that's the result of the multiplication of sin that has occurred over the course of the previous hundred or so years. At the end 
of chapter 11. One of the most important uh, lessons of last week is in its final two verses, verses 23 and 24, in advance of the arrival of the Babylonians to lay siege to the city. That siege will be effective. The walls will not be able to resist the battering rams. The Babylonians will come in, they will destroy, they will kill, and they will dismantle the temple before all of that happens in a vision of Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 23. The prophet saw the glory of the Lord go up from the midst of the city, Jerusalem, and stand upon the mountain, which is on the east side of the city, that is, moving to the top of the Mount of Olives. And the spirit, Ezekiel remembers in the vision, lifted me up and brought me in the vision by the spirit of God into Chaldea to the exiles. And then the vision that I had seen went up for me. And I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. In chapters 10 and 11, the spirit of God, his presence, the Shekinah glory, had risen from the Ark of the Covenant hovered over the Holy of Holies, moved to the entrance of the holy place, outside the entrance to the gate leading from the Temple Mount across the Kidron Valley, and then eventually to the Mount of Olives. The Spirit of God has departed from Jerusalem. So no matter what the Babylonians do, they're not going to be able to compromise God. That's the point of the vision. Now, in chapter 12, the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel speaking, son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see, but do not see, who have ears to hear, but hear not, for they are rebellious. Therefore, son of man, prepare for yourself an exile's bag. You're going to enact for them what will happen to those in Jerusalem when the Babylonians descend upon them. You are to prepare for yourself an exile's bag and symbolically go into exile by day in their sight. And you shall go like an exile from your place to another place in their sight. Perhaps then they will understand then that they are a rebellious house. You shall bring out your baggage by day in their sight as if you were going into exile and you shall go forth yourself at evening in their sight again as men who must go in to exile. You're going to occasionally dig through the wall in Babylon in their sight and go out through it. They'll watch in amazement as in their sight you lift the baggage upon your shoulder and carry it out under the cloak of darkness, and you'll cover your face that you may not see the land, for I have and will make you a sign for the house of Israel. So in verse 7, the prophet says, I did as I was commanded. I brought out my baggage by day as if I was preparing for exile. And in the evening, I dug through the wall with my own hands under the cloak of darkness. I went forth in the dark, carrying my outfit upon my shoulder in their sight. That is, I can only escape with what I can carry. And he's saying this will be the fate of everyone in Jerusalem in a very short amount of time. Now, in the morning, verse 8, the Lord's word came to the prophet, Son of man, has not the house of Israel, the rebellious house, said to you, have they not 
asked you, and they have, what are you doing? Well, here's your answer. This oracle, you tell them, concerns the prince in Jerusalem, who's been appointed as king under the hegemony of the Babylonians, and all the house of Israel who are in it. Say, I am a sign for you. As I have done, so shall it be done to them. They shall go into exile, into captivity. And the prince who is among them shall lift his baggage upon his shoulder in the dark and shall try to escape himself, go forth. He shall dig through the wall and go through it. He shall cover his face with disguise that he may not see the land with his eyes. But I will, God speaking now in verse 13, spread my net over him, and he shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon in the land of the Chaldeans, yet he shall not see it, and he shall die there. Now you pause here and hold your place because we're coming right back, and let's go to the prophet Jeremiah. In the prophecy of Jeremiah, we have a prophet who lives through this event in history, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem by Babylonian military forces. The first seven verses of Jeremiah chapter 39 detail what the prophet's vision revealed in Babylon. So let me read to you Jeremiah chapter 39 verses 1 to 7. In the ninth year, Jeremiah 39, of Zedekiah, who is the king of Judah, called the prince in the Ezekiel prophecy. In the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he's the king, that's why you would call Zedekiah a prince, and all his army came against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, a breach was made in the city's defenses. When Jerusalem was taken, all the princes of the king of Babylon came and sat in the middle gate. That is, they have taken over city hall. When Zedekiah, in verse 4, the king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled, going out of the city, here it is now, by night, by way of the king's garden, through the gate between the two walls, a secret exit passageway, and they headed toward the Arabah. They fled eastward, hoping to cross the Jordan River. But the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, they're synonymous, pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plain of Jericho. And when they had taken him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, at Riblaah, and he passed sentence upon Zedekiah. Now watch. The king of Babylon, in addition to pronouncing sentence, slew the sons of Zedekiah, royal princes, at Riblaah before his eyes. And then the king of Babylon ordered that all the nobles who were in the retinue of Zedekiah were also to be slain. And then he put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in fetters to take him to Babylon. He will arrive in Babylon a man blinded, and blinded after witnessing the most important persons in his life, his sons and his nobles loyal to him, die at the hand of the commanding army of Babylon. So we return then to Ezekiel chapter 11 and verse 12, knowing and controlling now 
Jeremiah chapter 39, the historical sequence of events that in fact came to pass, think about how accurate this prophecy is. So in verse 12 of Ezekiel chapter 12, the prince who is among them shall lift his baggage upon his shoulder in the dark and shall go forth. He shall dig through the wall and go out through it. He shall cover his face, disguise, so that he may not see the land with his eyes. But I will spread my net over him, and he shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon in the land of Chaldeans. And here it is, yet he shall not see it, and he shall die there. Why wouldn't he be able to see it? Well, we learn in Jeremiah chapter 39, because his eyes are put out at the command of the Babylonian military generals, right? Nebuchadnezzar. And therefore, blinded when he arrives in Babylon, he has no ability to see where he will live out the rest of his days. An amazing conjoining of these two great prophetic characters. Jeremiah, who lived through those events, and Ezekiel, who was given vision about what would happen and had to be amazed when Zedekiah showed up in Babylon, quite blinded, as we note historically. Now, in verse 17 of Ezekiel chapter 12, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, we would read between the lines, again, son of man, another way to indicate the kind of disaster that looms for Jerusalem. I want you to sit down and eat your bread with quaking, and drink your water with trembling and with fearfulness, and say to the people of the land, Thus says the Lord God concerning the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the land of Israel. They shall, when the Babylonians surround the city, eat their bread like this with fearfulness, and drink water in dismay, because their land will be stripped of all it contains on account of the violence of those who dwell in it. And the inhabited cities shall be laid waste, and the land shall become a desolation. And you then shall know that I am the Lord. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, what is this proverb that some of you have about the land of Israel? It goes something like this in the middle of verse 22. The days grow long, and every vision comes to naught. That is, we've heard all of this before, and it's never been fulfilled. Well, you tell them, because that's the way they're thinking. This is what the Lord God says. I will put an end to this proverb, and they shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel. But say to them, the days are at hand, and so is the fulfillment of every vision. For there shall be no more false vision or flattering divination within the house of Israel. But I, the Lord, will speak the word which I will speak, and it will be performed. It will no longer be delayed, because in your days, O rebellious house, I will speak the word and perform it, says the Lord. So it's on, and Ezekiel knows what he's saying is going to come to pass. And of course, we have the book of the prophet Jeremiah giving us the historical record from the prophet's perspective, who lived through these same realities. Now, in chapter 13, we have a chapter that is going to condemn false prophets of both genders, male and female. Those prophets who are saying, 
not to worry, it's going to go fine, peace, peace, when there is no peace. So let's enter in. In chapter 13, son of man, prophesy, speak against the prophets of Israel, false prophets. Prophesy and say to those who prophesy out of their own minds, hear the word of the Lord. Woe or shame on the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets have been like foxes among the ruins. You've not gone up into the breaches or built up a wall in the house of Israel that it might stand in battle in the day of the Lord. If an army surrounds a city and destructively begins to open a spot in the wall, you have to stand in that breach in order to keep the enemy from advancing. And building a wall for the house of Israel, wherever you see the battering rams stationed, you have to then build a secondary wall inside the first wall that has space between the two that you fill with debris in order to absorb the pounding of the battering ram so that those forces of the siege uh, are going to be repelled. And so again, you're saying to the prophets, false, all, in Babylon, you've not seen what I've seen in the vision. You haven't been in the breach, and you haven't participated in the building of that secondary wall. In verse 6, they, these false prophets, have spoken falsehood and divined a lie. They say, thus says the Lord, when the Lord has not sent them, and yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a delusive vision and uttered a lying divination whenever you have said, thus says the Lord, although God says, I have not spoken through you. So in verse 9, my hand will be against these false prophets who see delusive visions and to give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord God. They're never going to leave Babylon. Why? Well, because they've misled my people, saying peace, in verse 10, when there is no peace, and because when the people build a wall, these prophets daub it with whitewash. They, they wash over the true prophecy. Say to those who daub it with whitewash, that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain, great hailstones will fall, and a stormy wind will break out, and when the wall falls, will it not be said to you, where is the daubing with which you daubed it? What happened to your whitewashing? It looked so good, but there was nothing behind it. And also in verse 17, Son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people false prophets of the female gender, who also prophesy out of their own minds, prophesy against them and say, shame on the women who sew magic bands upon their wrists and make veils for the heads of persons of every statue, every idol, in the hunt for souls. Will you hunt down souls belonging to my people and keep other souls alive for your profit? You have profaned me among my people for handfuls of barley and for pieces of bread, putting to death persons who should not die and keeping alive persons who should not live, all by your lies and by those who listen to your lies. So in verse 20, God says, 
I am equally against your magic bands, with which you hunt the souls, and I will tear them from your arms, and will let the souls that you hunt go free like birds. Your veils also I will tear off of the idols that you've clothed, and deliver my people out of your hand, and they shall no more in and they shall be no more in your hand as prey, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And finally, at the end of verse 23 of chapter 13, God says, through the prophet Elijah, I'm sorry, through the prophet Ezekiel, I will deliver my people out of your hand, and then you will know that I am the Lord. So Ezekiel's dealing with false prophets who are contradicting what he is saying in Babylon, both male and female false prophets who are also acting out their prophecies, sewing magic bands on the wrists of their followers, that sort of thing. Now, in chapter 14, to Ezekiel came certain men, elders of Israel, who sat before the prophet. And as they sat there, in verse 2, the word of the Lord, Ezekiel remembers, came to me, son of man, I heard the Lord say, in verse 3, these men, these elders of Israel, with gray hair and esteem, therefore, associated with that presence that they have in the community, have taken their idols into their hearts. It's no longer just an external, now it's an internal realization. And they have set stumbling blocks of their iniquity before their faces. Should I let myself be inquired of it all by them? Should I answer them if they ask me? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God. And we'll read between the lines. From now on, any man of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him myself because of the multitude of his idols that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are all estranged from me through their idols. I, I'm going to do something directly to, to bring them back from the brink. Therefore says, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord your God, repent and turn away from your idols to the elders in Babylon and turn away your faces from all your abominations. Repent, meaning turn away and come back. For any one of the house of Israel, or of the strangers that sojourn in Israel, the exiles, who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart, and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to a prophet to inquire for himself of me, I, the Lord, will answer him myself, and I will set my face against that man. I will make him a sign and a byword, and cut him off from the midst of my people, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And if the prophet be deceived and speaks a word, I, the Lord, well then, have deceived that prophet, I will stretch out my hand against him and will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. In verse 13, son of man, it boils down to this. When a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, 
and I stretch out my hand against that land, and break its staff of bread, and send famine upon it, and cut off from it man and beast. When I've decided to do something like this, it's because my patience has come to an end. I can no longer bear what's going on. Then, in verse 14, even if these three men, all wisdom figures, Noah of Genesis, Daniel, not Daniel the prophet, but Daniel, D-A-N-E-L, and Job, of course, the wisdom figure in the book of Job, even if these three men, ah, uh, even if these three men were in that land, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, says the Lord, but not save the lives of everyone else. If I cause wild beasts, verse 15, to pass through the land, and they ravage it, and it is made desolate, so that no man may pass through because of the beasts, even if these three men were in it, as I live, he swears, says the Lord, they would deliver neither their sons nor daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the land would be desolate. And if I bring a sword on the land, meaning the Babylonians, and these three men say, let a sword go through the land, and I cut off from it man and beast, though these three men were in it as I live, says the Lord God. They would deliver neither their sons nor daughters, but they alone would be delivered. So, in verse 21, how much more then, when I send upon Jerusalem my four sore acts of judgment, sword, famine, evil beasts, and pestilence to cut off from it man and beast. Yet, if there should be left in it any survivors to lead out sons and daughters, when they come forth to you, they'll eventually end up in Babylon, and you see their ways and their doings, you will be consoled for the evil that I brought upon Jerusalem, for all that I brought upon it. They will console you when you see their ways and their doings, and you shall know that I have not done anything without cause. All that I have done in it was necessary, says the Lord God. So, a consolation, in a sense, to the prophet Ezekiel. When you see these exiles appear, you will know every prophetic word you announce to the elders and others in exile has now come to pass. And even though Ezekiel is a man of faith and has prayed, that God's hand would be stayed, he realizes that that's not God's plan at all. And so when the exiles appear and you see their ways and their doings, you, the prophet, will be consoled for the evil that I have brought upon Jerusalem. You will understand that it was necessary. Now we're going to see later, there's always a hope that is part of the prophetic liturgy, the prophetic announcement, the prophetic message. And that will come at a later date. But in chapter 15, we have yet another wonderful vision. The word of the Lord came to me in a very brief chapter, right? Just eight verses in length. Son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood? Now, we know that whenever a prophet speaks about a vine, we are always imaging Israel at her conception. And that reminds us of Isaiah chapter 5 and verses 
one to five. A very important prophetic connection. Whenever a prophet speaks about a vine, this is the image. Jesus as well. Uh, I am the vine and you are the branches. Okay, so let's look at Isaiah chapter 5 verses 1 to 5 yet again. The prophet Isaiah says, let me sing for my beloved, meaning for God, a love song concerning his, meaning God's vineyard, right? The vineyard of the Lord. My beloved, God, had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked over time for it to yield grapes, good grapes to produce a wonderful vintage, but it yielded only wild grapes. And now the prophet Isaiah says, O habits of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Yet when I look for it to yield wild, I'm sorry, when I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And so now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no more upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he, meaning God, looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed was found for righteousness. But behold, a cry of despair. All right, so that's the evocative image of the vineyard of the Lord, which is the house of Israel, imaged as Judah and Jerusalem and the temple. So coming back to Ezekiel chapter 15, son of man, with an image of a vine now in our minds, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood? The vine branch, which is among the trees of the forest. The wood of the vine is fragile. It's not really useful for very many things except producing good grapes. Is wood taken from the vine to make anything? Do men take a peg from it to hang any vessel on? That's basically all you can do. Cut it up and use it as pegs to hang things on. Look, it is given ultimately over to the fire for fuel when it is pruned. When the fire has consumed both ends of it and the middle of it is charged, is it useful for anything? Behold, when it was whole, it was used for nothing. How much less when the fire has consumed it and it is charred, can it ever be used for anything else? The wood of the vine, the, the, the plant stuff that makes up the vine, it is not very useful for anything except producing grapes. And when it doesn't produce grapes, good fruit, it should be cut back and whatever remains burned. And that's what's going to happen to Jerusalem. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, like the wood of the vine, in verse 6, among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the 
fire for fuel, so will I give up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will set my face against them. Though they escape from the fire, the fire shall yet consume them. And you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. And I will make the land desolate because they have acted faithlessly, says the Lord God. Now, what follows is an amazing chapter, right? If they have acted faithlessly, says the Lord, we are now going to find out how faithlessly they had become. And that's the subject of a very long chapter, but very engaging as well. Chapter 16 of the book of the prophet Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and begin by recounting her story of origin. Your origin in the middle of verse three and your birth, meaning Israel, are of the land of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth on the day you were born, your navel string was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt or swathed in swaddling bands. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you, but out of compassion for you, you were cast upon the open ground, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. Your beginnings were suspect at best, and you had nothing uh, about your origin that would say you had a future of glory on the horizon. But when I passed by you, in verse 6, and saw you weltering in your blood, I said to you in your afterbirth, live and grow up like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived in this prophetic vision at full maidenhood. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. And when I passed by you again and looked upon you, behold, you were now at the age for love, that is, marriage. And so God says in this prophetic image, I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. We became husband and wife. Yes, I plighted my troth to you and entered into a covenant with you, says the Lord, and you became mine we were married, husband and wife. I covered your nakedness. I'm going to protect you. Remember Genesis chapter 9? When Ham goes into the tent of his inebriated father Noah and then boasts to his brothers uh, that he had uncovered the nakedness of his father, it meant, remember, that he had committed, uh, well, an act of sexual aggression against his mother, right, who was left unprotected because of Noah's incapacitation through the consumption of wine. And that's what was meant when he bragged and boasted that I've uncovered the nakedness of our father. I've revealed to you, brothers, that our father has lost his ability to protect women in his company. Well, here God says, I was your man. I was husbanded to you. In verse 9, I bathed you with water and washed off your blood and anointed you with oil. I clothed you with embroidered cloth and shod you with leather. I swathed you in fine linen and covered you with silk all on the day of your wedding. I decked you with ornaments and put bracelets on your arms and a chain on your neck. 
and I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown upon your head. Google image Yemenite bride, Y-E-M-I-N-I-T-E bride. It's a type of Jewish community, and in Yemen, uh, the Jewish women are adorned like this on the day of their wedding. So you can just type into the search engine, Yemen or Yemenite bride, and then hit images, and you'll see uh, what this might have looked like in the time even of the prophet Ezekiel. In verse 13, thus you were decked with gold and silver, your raiment was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and be and came to regal estate. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor which I had bestowed upon you, says the Lord God. Out of nothing, I've taken you into my home and given you everything. You are a bride resplendent in all of your glory. But in verse 15, you trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your renown. How popular you had become. And you lavished your harlot trees on any passerby. You took some of your garments and made for yourself gaily decked shrines and on them played the harlot. The like has never been nor shall ever be. You also took your fair jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourselves images of men, and with them played the harlot, idols. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them, clothing the idols, and set my oil and incense before them, offerings made to these idols. Also my bread, which I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set before them for a pleasing odor, that is, an offering, says the Lord God. And you took your sons and your daughters, whom you had borne to me, and these eventually you sacrificed to them to be devoured. The idolatries always amplify. Were your harlotries no small matter, that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them, meaning these idols? And in all your abominations and your harlotries, you did not remember the days of your youth, when you were naked and bare, when you were weltering in your blood, when I reached out and I held you and I named you my wife. After all your wickedness, you built, in verse 24, yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in the square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty place and prostituted your beauty, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your harlotry. You also played the harlot with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your harlotry to provoke me to anger with geopolitical associations. In verse 28, you played the harlot also with the Assyrians to the north because you were insatiable. Yes, you played the harlot with them and you still were not satisfied. And you then, in verse 29, multiplied your harlotry also with the trading land of Chaldea, the Babylonians. And even with this, you were not satisfied. How lovesick is your heart, God wonders, seeing that you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen harlot. You built your vaulted chamber at the head of every street, 
and making your lofty place in every square. Yet you were not like a harlot because you, amazingly, scorned higher. You would not receive payment for your services rendered. Adulterous wife, who receives strangers instead of her husband? Men give gifts to harlots, payments, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side for your harlotries. You actually paid them. So you were different from all other women in your harlotries. None solicited you to play the harlot, and you gave hire. Well, no, hire was given to you. Therefore, you were different. You paid men to sleep with you, rather than at least demanding from the men that they pay you for your harlot's services. This is the insidious nature of your idolatries. So wherever you are, O harlot, verse 35, hear the word of the Lord. Because your shame was laid bare and your nakedness uncovered in your harlotries with your lovers and because of all your idols and because of the blood on your children that you gave to them, therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those who loved you and all those you loathed, and I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all of your nakedness. That is, it's all over. And I will judge you as women who break wedlock and shed blood are judged and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. And I will give you into the hand of your lovers, and they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty place. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your fair jewels and leave you naked and bare. And they shall bring up a host against you, and they shall stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. And they shall burn your houses and execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women. I will make you stop playing the harlot, and you shall give higher no more. Remember, this is a prophetic image of Israel, the house of the Lord, which has played the harlot. And this is why the destructive forces of the Babylonians are on their way. At the end of verse 43, have you not committed lewdness in addition to all your abominations? Behold, everyone who uses Proverbs will use this proverb about you, like mother, like daughter. You are the daughter of your mother, who loathed her husband and her children, and you are the sister of your sisters, who loathed their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite, and your father was an Amorite. Your eldest sister is Samaria, to the north of Judah, who lived with her daughters to the north of you, and your youngest sister, who lived in the south of you with Sodom, with her daughters. You haven't learned the lesson of the Assyrian conquest of 722 BC. They came, they conquered 10 northern tribes lost to history. You haven't remembered the history of Genesis chapter 19, the destruction of Sodom, because the sin there was amplified to a point where God said, Halas, that is enough. In your history, a lesson. To the north, of you a lesson, and yet you haven't learned and you haven't responded. Again, speaking about Sodom, Genesis chapter 19, in verse 48, as I live, says the Lord, 
Your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, the guilt of your sister Sodom, she and her daughters had pride, plenty of food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did abominable things before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. Samaria, destroyed by the Assyrians, has not committed half your sins that you have committed. And you have committed more abominations than they and have made your sisters appear righteous by all the abominations which you have committed. And then to cast salt on the wound, I will restore their fortunes, both the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters and the fortunes of Samaria and her daughters. And I will restore your own fortunes in the midst of them that you may bear your shame and be ashamed of all that you have done becoming a consolation to them. So as I mentioned, there's always cause for hope. And we see that at the very end of the chapter, in verses 59 to its conclusion, the Lord finally says, I will deal with you as you have done. You deserve what's coming your way. You who have despised the oath and breaking the covenant, yet I will always remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish with you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when I take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and give them to you as daughters, not, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you will know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth against me because of your shame when I forgive you all that you have done, says the Lord God. Now, that brings us to the end of chapter 16, and I'm 45 minutes or so into the lecture, and I'm limited by 50. So, having said that, thank you for taking the time to listen and learn about the prophet Ezekiel. I do enjoy putting these lectures together and look forward to a time when I can see the response of your faces on the next Wednesday night that we can gather. Until then, though, never forget what a great student you are. Good night and God bless.